Father, you speak words of life to us. Gracious God, we pray that you will grant us a heart of faith to receive all that you speak to us, Lord, so that by your Spirit, you may cause life to sprout and to thrive in us, even as we live in your kingdom. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The author James Clear um, talked about or writes about the story of how um, a cycling coach named Dave um, Brailsford dramatically transformed the British cycling team starting in 2003. Now, before this, the British cycling team, they were you know, unimpressive. They were really um, performing below par. In fact, um, in the Olympic events, the British team never won in more than 100 years at that point in 2003. Um, in the cycling events, most prestigious event, the Tour de France, um, Britain had not won there for more than also 100 years. But when this new coach, Dave Brunswick Brailsford, came in, uh, he introduced his approach of um, finding and making many small improvements uh, to achieve a big result. His idea was that he, he kind of took what it took to ride a bicycle well, to ride a bike well. He, he kind of took that approach and he broke it out into many, many small components. And he worked to improve just 1% improvement in each small area. Didn't go for a big one. Just a small increment marginal improvement in every small component that he could find to achieve a big overall result. And so Dave and his uh, coaching team began to find and make many, many small adjustments and improvements into how the cycling team prepared train and perform in competitive cycling events. Uh, they had riders wear specially uh, heated, electronically heated shorts to maintain ideal muscle temperature while riding. Uh, they had the riders wear all sorts of bio uh, sensors to kind of find out how, how well they were responding to a certain workout. They designed the bicycle seats so that it would be more comfortable. Um, they tested various massage gels to make sure uh, they find the one that could promote faster muscle healing. They put alcohol uh, on the, the wheels for better grip on the roads. Um, they even taught the riders how to wash their hands properly to reduce the chance they might catch a cold uh, during their competitive events. Um, they they kind of designed beds, uh, pillow, mattresses to uh, make sure that their riders have the maximum night sleep of rest each night. So they found these hundreds of areas of improvement that we normally don't think of, and they strove from only a 1% improvement, a marginal gain uh, to get that edge over their competition. Five years after Brailsford took over, the British cycling team gave a winning performance in the 2008 Beijing Olympics in both the, the track and the road events. They actually won 60% of the gold medals available in those events. In the following Olympics in London, four years later, they outperformed again, five years later, sorry. They outperformed again by setting nine Olympic records and seven world records uh, in those cycling events. In the same year, in 2012, the British rider Bradley Wiggins won the Tour de France after more than 100 years. In the following year, his teammate Chris Froome won the Tour de France and would go on to win three more times in the coming years. In all, the British team 
won five Tour de France's in six years, almost unheard of in terms of the performance. The author, James Clear, then shares, shares this quote from Jim Rohn, which says, success is a few simple disciplines practice every day, while failure is simply a few errors in judgment repeated every day. How do we live life in God's kingdom? It's a few simple disciplines lived out every day. Every small decision, every small but significant moment when we choose to live according to God's way. Every small but significant decision that we submit to God's authority. The crucial moments when we choose to turn to the other cheek, to forgive, to love and pray for our enemies, to go the extra mile when we refuse to criticize a brother in Christ or a family member. When you study what is known as the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5 to Matthew chapter 7, it is everyday practical disciplines and decisions we take to reflect and demonstrate that Christ is king in our lives and in the midst of our church community. But there's a huge difference between how the world works towards success and how we live in God's kingdom. The world of sports, for example, the British cycling team that we saw, or the world of business or work or academic success, for the world, it is striving and laboring from personal energy or human effort and human reasoning. The danger is that you can get obsessive with legalistic rules and accomplishments that lead you to either pride or despair. Just like what the Pharisees of the Bible did with God's law, as uh, Brother Chikbu shared last week, they obsess over rules that govern outward observances, checklists that regulated behavior without achieving the inward heart transformation that God desired. They achieved legalistic righteousness but failed to experience inward heart transformation. So we could talk about small improvements and gaining improvements, but we need to avoid the trap of legalistic righteousness that results in either self-righteous pride or self-condemning shame. Both of these will result in the destruction of the soul. But the way of the, the, way of the kingdom, the way of God's kingdom, is totally different. The way of the kingdom is not self-effort or self-improvement by our own human strength. The way of the kingdom is through God's loving grace, His undeserved favor that works to change us from inside out. That our righteousness is solely derived from God's own enabling grace that works in us in response to God's love for us through the cross. How does, that, how does this enabling grace come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. One of the crucial things to understand when we study and obey what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount is that when the Messiah, that is the anointed king, when the Messiah came, the Bible teaches that it will also be the time of the outpouring of God's Spirit on his people. 
For example, we see this in Joel chapter 2, which uh, Peter specifically quotes in his sermon on, on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Joel says that in the, last, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh, men and women, sons and daughters. In John the Baptist's ministry, John preached that I baptize with water, but as one that is greater, more powerful, they will come after me and he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so disciples of Jesus will be baptized with the Holy Spirit so that by God's grace and Spirit working in them, they, will, they are able to have that exceeding righteousness that the Messiah King brings when he preached the kingdom. And this is what we find in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so our big idea for today is that we demonstrate God's kingdom by the Spirit-empowered decisions we make for Christ. Our scripture passage today touches on several important areas of our lives that demonstrate where our loyalties and priorities lie. It touches on areas we might find sensitive or uncomfortable to honestly discuss about how we view our finances, how we take decisions in pursuit of wealth and success in life. But these are precisely the areas Jesus wants to address in us so that God's word may flourish and bear fruit in our lives. And so today, we're going to look at the following areas for our reflection. First, the purity of worship. Second, the priority of the kingdom. And third, the power of the king's word. First, the, prior, the purity of worship. We worship what we desire most. God made humans with an incredible capacity to worship, for giving adoration, honor, respect, loyal service and dedication to something that is greater than ourselves. Since God designed us to be in relationship with Him as the good creator God, we are created to worship and honor God as our highest and greatest calling. In fact, true and proper worship brings forth life and growth as God always intended. Because of His everlasting love for us, God desires for our highest good. Our proper worship of God results in the life and growth in the best possible way that God desires for us. And since we become like what we worship, humans are created in God's image to reflect His glory, to demonstrate His goodness when we worship God in truth and righteousness. But we know that when sin entered the world, Sin distorted and perverted God's image in us. And when God's image was distorted in us, our capacity for worship became distorted, diluted, to the extent that now wrong worship is given to the wrong things, to the wrong powers, to the wrong influences. Humans today worship other powers and influences other than God. Some worship success and status. Some are 
obsessed by money and therefore money becomes their God. Some worship and give themselves to self-pleasures, some to their egos, their pride. Israel in the Old Testament fell to idolatry in going after the gods of the surrounding nations because they reasoned that these gods would give them security and prosperity. Jesus came to restore true worship so that God's image in us may be healed and restored. The kingdom of God that Jesus started and taught is about restoring true righteousness and worship by building a spirit-filled kingdom people who will worship and serve God and therefore reflect His glory. That is to be the salt of the earth and the life of the world. To be that city or town on a hill that gives true security and life to those around it. Jesus hits at the core struggle of our hearts as disciples. Where or who do we place our trust and hope in? Because by definition, we place our hope, our sense of well-being, our trust in who or what we worship or serve. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you hate the one or love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. A number of years ago, I read somewhere that if you wanted to determine uh, the priority of a Christian, and by extension, the church, if you want to find out about this Christian's or church priority, look at the way we handle money. That is to follow the money. And you will find where our true loyalties and priorities are. Similarly, think about this. The priority of a Christian or a church can also be found in the amount of focus, time, and effort in how we live out the day. What are we focused on? What motivates our day? If someone took a look at my personal or family finances or expenses, what would they find? If someone could track my efforts, my focus, my motivation throughout the day, what would they find? For Jesus, you cannot worship or serve two masters. Logically, we know this to be true, but in practice, we're always in danger of mixing up our worship and devoted service to other powers and influences, particularly in the area of money or financial riches. This is a bit of a struggle because how much do we earn? How much is enough, right? When we pursue wealth, when we save up for the future, how much is enough? Pastor Bill Johnson once said that, um, to the answer to the question, how much is enough, um, you can tell how much is enough by the, ex by the limit after which we cease to trust in God. You earn up, up to a certain level and you're confident. After that, you, you don't have to trust God for your daily provisions. You, you've got enough in the bank. Your future is all set up. You, you cease to trust in the Lord. But that's a fine point because we praise God for parents, hardworking parents who uh, work 
to secure the future of their children. I mean, praise God for that. And it is tough uh, when you have a single-income family or single parent, you know that's a real struggle. And as a church, we need to be supportive of families in need in our midst or um, outside our church communities. But what is the limit after which we are pursuing wealth for wealth's sake? The late Tim Keller once remarked that child sacrifice still existed in New York where he pastored a church. And he says this in the context of New York being the financial capital of the world where all the world's leading banks and financial institutions have their offices. And Tim Keller says that many sacrifice their time with their family and, and children by devoting to their work or having to commit so much time to the firm they are working for that you cease to have enough family time. So you could make a great salary, you could... Uh, have a comfortable lifestyle, but the parent-child relationship is sacrificed at the altar of career success. Jesus makes the point that if we are devoted to the pursuit of wealth and financial success, then our time and effort will go into, that, will go into the service of that pursuit. In time, we will come to despise the things of God, the ways of the Lord. At times, we despise God himself. We don't mean to, but when we turn away from spending time in prayer, reading God's word, worshipping as, worshiping as God's people, our love for God will surely grow cold. The things of God now is an inconvenience uh, to our daily pursuits. A time like prayer and spending time with fellow disciples and believers is just you know, an inconvenience, an intrusion into our daily program. We think less and less of God and the things of God as we live apart from God. As a church, we, should, we could also pursue programs and activities that bring satisfaction, a sense of accomplishment, but we need to be aware that anything, even something that is good of itself, anything that takes away time for God's people to pray, to grow in obedience to God's word, to cultivate God's presence in our lives, to spend time as a community of disciples, anything that detracts from that, can make our faith and devotion to God grow cold if you're not careful, if we forget and lose sight of why we're doing something in church. The deception we must stop telling ourselves is that we can pursue both God and our ambitions for worthy wealth and success. That's a deception that we tell ourselves. We can, that we can still prioritize God while also pursuing financial riches or a certain lifestyle. We have to stop deceiving ourselves. Jesus says it's not possible. You cannot serve both God and money or worthy success. You will love one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. True worship and devoted service are by design meant to be exclusive. True worship and devoted service cannot be shared between masters. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths, vermin destroy, while thieves can break in and steal. In our modern-day equivalent, the Bitcoin value can collapse, right, overnight. Right, so. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. 
Disciples of Christ are then called to accumulate true treasures in heaven by dedicated and loyal devotion to God in response to God's everlasting love for us through Christ. So our obedience is always in grateful response, in humble response to God's love for us in Christ. Our first takeaway then is where do we store our treasure? Where we store our treasure shows whom we worship. Second, the priority of the kingdom. Priority reveals worship. Priority naturally flows from worship. We prioritize what we worship. We give the best of our time and efforts to what or whom we worship. To put it another way, we are devoted to what gives us security and a sense of well-being. We prioritize our day according to the source of our well-being, our aspirations, our sense of security. And Jesus challenges his hearers to give careful consideration to what they are choosing as their source of security. Jesus, as we saw earlier, challenges to store up true treasure in heaven because that's the only thing that will last forever. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, as we saw earlier. Now, let's be clear. Life in this world is a struggle. It's a struggle for most of the world's population. Most, if not all of us here, work hard for an income. But as I said earlier, the question we need to ask ourselves sometimes in our relative middle-class affluence is, are we working for a living or for a lifestyle standard? And it's also a struggle to discern carefully because what I may consider as a necessity may be an impossible luxury for a poor family in another part of the world. Again, the question is, how much is enough? How much do we pursue beyond which we cease to trust in God and trust in the pursuit of that career or riches? Either way, Jesus says our lives are far greater than what we can eat, drink, or what we wear. We need the basics to live, but our lives have greater significance because we are made to live with God eternally. We are made, we are called to live with eternal impact for God in this life and in a life to come. So we need God's wisdom and discernment to know what necessities are enough and where to focus our time and energy on. We need the faith to believe that as God's children, our Heavenly Father will lovingly provide and supply our needs as we live for God's kingdom. As Jesus commands and promises us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things, that is our necessities, will be given to you as well. Now, this does not mean that we don't have to work hard for a living, but we work with trust that God is providing as we work in faith. We work with trust that God is providing as we work in faith. Working in faith means that we serve God's kingdom wherever He places us in. 
To be sure, there are a lot of things that cause us worries and anxieties. Our minds, our energies are pulled in, put apart in so many different directions. Worries about what is to come and so on. Uh, the original Greek word for anxiety means to be pulled in different directions. Our minds are scattered in different, among different concerns and fears. But Jesus tells us to keep our mind focused on the one thing, on living for God as he provides for us in ways we cannot know in advance. That's why you need faith. Our anxious minds wants immediate answers, certainty. But Jesus reminds us that our certainty is found in the heart of a loving Heavenly Father who provides for His children. And because our Heavenly Father holds all our days ahead, Jesus says in Matthew 6 verse 34, don't bring in tomorrow's troubles and worry about them today. Today, you experience God's grace and provision to overcome today's challenges. And the implication is that God will supply for tomorrow's needs as well. A few months ago, uh, someone shared this devotional reading from Os Hillman, which I shared with my small group and others. And uh, Hillman provides us with this insight. He says, for most of us, we derive our necessities of life through our work. Like the birds of the field, we are commanded to go out and gather what God has already provided. It is, it is a process of participation in what God has already provided. Sometimes it appears it's all up to us. Sometimes it appears it's all up to God, and that's so true. Sometimes you're just working your bone out. You know, you don't deliver that report. You can't deliver that sale. It's all on you. Or sometimes in our pride, uh, we say we've done a good job. That's great. And other times, we know that it's impossible. We are in an impossible situation. We need God to work. And, um, but praise God, we have to remember that in either case, whether it appears that it's up to you or it's, you need God's intervention, in either case, we must realize that God is our provider. The job is only an instrument of his provision. And he requires our involvement in either case. You need to work hard, but you also need to trust in his provision and grace. So God provides our necessities through our work vocation. But God also works through where he has placed us uh, in the workplace or wherever he places you. Because as Jesus commands, we are to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness in all aspects of life. You may work for your boss or the company, but you work with integrity and excellence because it is actually the Lord Jesus Christ you are serving. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 to 24, whatever you do, work, it, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Someone shared with me sometime last year, if I recall correctly, uh, how he faced tremendous pressure and challenges at the workplace, mainly caused by um, decisions that need to be implemented or ways of operating 
that affected people negatively. And there was a lot of uh, fear, anxiousness in that particular environment. And this brother really struggled for a number of months, just struggled through prayer and asking for God's hand. This uh, seems to be an impossible situation. But praise God that the Lord opened up a way for him to express his concern to the management and the whole situation was eventually reversed and resolved. In the same way, God placed you in a workplace not just to earn a living, but to represent Christ well, to pray, to intervene, to mediate, to bring about change, to influence change that benefits the people around you, your partners, your customers. Now, we need God's wisdom and discernment in how to do this, but if our hearts are always seeking God's kingdom and His righteousness, then God will also enable us to make an impact in the workplace or wherever the Lord places you in. For our second key takeaway, do our daily motivation, focus, and efforts show God as our priority? Third, the power of the king's word. God enables what he commands. God's word carries the weight of God's authority and will to accomplish his purpose. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, God declares that, so it is my word, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God's command is intended to give life and flourishing for God's people. And when we obey in faith, we are, ex we are able to experience the abundant life and growth that God desires for us. In fact, when Jesus preached and spoke God's word to the people, we read that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 to 29, that the people recognized that the words of Jesus carried divine authority more than any teacher of the law. We read that when Jesus had finished all these sayings, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. The words of Jesus have divine authority to accomplish God's purposes and desires for us when we obey in faith. The teachings and commands of Jesus are intended to give us a strong foundation to live securely under God's grace and to thrive even under various trials and challenges of life. And Jesus says this himself in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 25, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. The only reason we can thrive in the face of uncertainties and the challenges is the authority and power of our King's word. So, for example, we saw in a previous point, we are to trust in God's provision when we seek Him first. We are able to forgive 
knowing how much God has forgiven us. We are able to break free from lust, sexual immorality by the power of God's Word because we experience a far better way of living under God's kingdom. God's Word, the commands of our King Jesus, bring us abundant life and flourishing when we obey in faith. If you have ever wondered how you could experience God's presence and His power personally, it is this, to obey God's Word in faith, not when we feel like it, not when it is convenient, but every day, in every small way, in every decision, in every aspect of our life, we obey by the power of the Holy Spirit. And every area that you move in obedience, no matter how small, increases your experience and awareness of God's presence in your life. Because the obedience will be accompanied by God's power, His provision, His presence as you live for Him. And when we obey in faith, then the people around us will also start to experience God. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So we need to be paying attention to how God's Word is speaking to us. What is God saying about my online viewing habits, about what I'm watching? What is God's Word saying about my marriage? What is God's Word saying about how I pursue success, how I manage money? If I choose to ignore what God word is saying about my marriage, about my children, about my family, about my work, then my lack of hearing and obeying God's word hinders the life-changing purposes of God for my life and for my family and for my church community. On the other hand, if we allow the Holy Spirit to convict, to prompt, to guide every area of our lives, and when we obey in faith, then our marriages, our family life will be built on the solid rock that is Christ. Our livelihoods will be built on the solid rock that is Christ. Our church life, our outreach, our giving to help others will be built on the solid rock that is Christ because there is power and authority in the words of our King. I'd like to end by inviting us to a time of prayer that we come into the Lord's presence and we'll open our hearts and our lives before Him. What is God's Word saying to us about our finances? What is God's Word saying to us about our career choices or life ambitions? What is God's word saying to us about our marriages, our relationships, about the way we treat one another, about the way, about the things we say behind people's back? 
What is God's word saying about our children? About how we are raising them? Do they learn more about the ways of the world from us as parents? Or do they learn about God's ways? Do we teach them to pursue worthy success? Or do we teach them to seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness? Now, God's word convicts us and corrects us, but not to condemn us. If the Holy Spirit convicts and corrects us about something, it is not to condemn us, but to bring us back to the life-giving purposes of God, to make us grow and thrive in His kingdom. God's word has the power to set us free from our sins and our bondages. God's word has the power to change circumstances and transform lives when we believe and obey the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of our King. And the word of the Lord may actually encourage a lot of us here. If you have been progressing in your faith, the Holy Spirit will confirm and affirm God's joy and delight in your faithful obedience. So I'd like to ask you, invite you to spend this moment with the Lord to repent, to rejoice, to be comforted in the Lord's presence. Father, we praise you for you are merciful and gracious and compassionate God. Lord, you know all things. You certainly know every detail about our lives. You know the condition of our hearts. You know our ups. You know our downs. You know our strength. You know our weaknesses. You know areas of our lives that we have tried to please you. Areas of our lives that we have sinned against you. Father, in all of this, you draw us to yourself to be healed, to be redeemed, to be restored so that we can grow and thrive as your people under your kingdom. Gracious God, I pray for those in our midst who have not known you as their Lord and Saviour. And if the Spirit of the Lord is convicting you, I'd like to invite you to open your heart to Jesus and to receive from Him the joy of His salvation. And if you are that person, please pray with me. Dear Lord, I confess I'm a sinner, lost without you. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins on the cross, that he was raised on the third day so that I might have a future and a hope. I believe that you redeem my past and I believe that my present and my future is in your hands. I want to pray for those of us who like to Renew our faith commitment to the Lord to seek first His kingdom, His righteousness. We can't do this on our human strength. 
but the Lord will provide us the grace and the empowering of His Spirit when we turn to Him in faith. Father, forgive us for the things that we have done that falls far short of your glory. Forgive us for areas in our lives that we have not sought you first. We have sought the desires of our own hearts. We have allowed our own desires and ambitions to run our lives. Gracious God, we come back to you now because you are a gracious, merciful, compassionate God. We come back to you now because you are the God who gives us your spirit, your grace to live for you. And so even as we turn back to you, Father, we pray that you pour out your spirit upon our hearts, that you fill our lives with your presence, and that you will bring us back to the path of the kingdom. Father, I pray for those of us who lack provision. Lord, we stand on the promises of your word that you will provide even as we turn to you. I pray, Lord, for all of us here who need healing. Even as we look to you, gracious God, we pray for your healing word to complete its work in our lives and in our bodies. We pray, Father, for those of us who are struggling to make ends meet who would like a new direction in life under your kingdom. Father, your promises do not fail your word is filled with your authority and will. And so according to your word, we pray that you bring us back to serving you and living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all of this, Lord, we put our trust in you and we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.